Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science sneak into your brain and take over the world. I'm Ian Wolfe, and on this edition, we'll feature artificial intelligence and assassins that move like the wind. But first up, here's the news with Dr. Julianne Popple. Scientists at Macquarie University have determined that there's a species of assassin bug that moves like the wind to sneak up on its unsuspecting spider prey. Dr Anne Wignall and colleagues from Macquarie University studied the behaviour of the species Stenolemus bituberus and observed that it would wait until the wind would rustle the web causing vibrations in the web so then it could sneak up on the spider undetected and successfully devour its spider victim. Quite sinister really for our ninja assassin bug. So it it actually waits, I presume on a stick or a nearby branch and just waits until it feels the wind and sees the wind move the web before it actually walks onto the web. And then it, when it walks on the web, it, it sort of walks in a very sort of staggered, shaky way so as not to create, you know, excess vibrations because spiders are very, very sensitive to any sort of vibrations in their web. It's how they detect that they've caught something. So it's sort of a Mission Impossible break-in to steal stuff sort of a way of getting in. Yeah, and it's a really exciting discovery because it's the first time that anyone, I think, demonstrated that using that kind of, background environmental noise as a sort of in interference, a sort of stealth technique for sneaking up on prey. It's quite uh, quite special, really. And the news last week was that a 13-year-old American boy has discovered a way to get more efficiency from solar cells using his observations that trees in a forest catch sunlight with leaves that are arranged in the Fibonacci sequence. And if you think about it, it makes sense that life would have evolved the most efficient way it could to get as much light for trees as they could. He wasn't the first person to observe that, though. That's a very long-standing observation about the leaves. But what he did was apply that to solar cells, which no one else has done. So what he's done is he modelled on a computer the way the branches are arranged in a Fibonacci sequence, the spiral shape that they've got in particular, the angles at which they're going, because they're not all facing, you know, east at sunrise and west at sunset. He built a little tree based on his model. He put little solar cells on it, and then he made an equivalent flat panel, just like you'd have on your roof, at the same angle you'd have it on your roof, and measured how much sun you got over the course of a day and how much power was generated and he found 20% more power with his little tree than you would get from flat panels on a roof. How old is this kid? 13. His name is Aidan Dwyer from Northport, New York. Wow, I hope he got an A in his science class. 
The cover story of New Scientist this week is why millions of genetically modified animals are being released into the wild. And the animals they're talking about are mosquitoes in areas that carry dengue fever because dengue fever is transferred by mosquito bite and really there's no other way to control the disease that we've found so far. So, Julianne, do you know the researchers involved? I do. Professor Scott O'Neill has been working for quite some time on ways in which you can sort of genetically manipulate mosquitoes in order to render them sterile in a sense do still produce viable uh, offspring, offspring that are alive, and they do develop to a certain point, I think, the pupil stage, just before adult, but then they don't... Then they, they die. Then the they killer die. genes That's kick right. in and they die. So the idea being is if you uh, release many of these ones with, that have had their DNA modified, then it sort of dilutes the natural population. The risk with this is that if you know you've already got quite a substantial natural population, then maybe releasing a certain number of individuals isn't going to be sufficient in order for that gene to really have a huge effect in reducing numbers. But you know that's I think that's why they're planning to do it or release them during periods where the populations are lower in density. Now, of course, critics of genetic modified technology might be horrified at the idea that genetically altered animals are being released in such numbers. Is there anything for them to worry about? In this case, I'd say not. It's not like they're inserting an entirely um, foreign gene. As far as I understand it, they're not inserting like a gene from a tomato or something really, you know, quite alien to the organism. They're just impacting on how long it's going to live, not really giving it novel genetic material per se. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SCR, and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. The whole point of the Singularity Summit was to be bold in your speculations about the future. The singularity, the technological singularity, is a moment when technological change becomes so rapid and important that it represents a rupture in the fabric of human history, according to Lev Grossman. The earliest person to use this phrase was computer scientist and science fiction writer Werner Vinge. And the basic idea is that there's going to be all sorts of technologies that affect each other, and there's a graph they've got of technological development over history. And we've reached a point at the moment where, for example, computer speed for $1,000, doubles every 18 months. The amount of memory doubles every year, or less. So it's only a matter of time until computers reach at least the processing power that's estimated to be in the human brain. And we've just reached that this year. And for the 
bigger supercomputers. And then it's an only a, a little bit further along before we've all got one and we can do all sorts of things with it. The theory is that if you've got an actual self-aware artificial intelligence that can reprogram itself and change its hardware to be more efficient, then it's going to do that very quickly. It's going to be at least as good as a human who could design a better one, but it's going to become better as soon as it applies its first improvements to itself. And then it's going to do it again and again and again. And basically it'll become so fast and so super intelligent so quickly that we won't even notice what's happened until it's all done. The other versions are that there could be changes to human intelligence. We might actually find that using these AIs, they might not become software themselves, but they might become part of our intelligence. Already we have in the Western world, people who carry an internet-enabled computer in their pocket at all times, keeping them connected to the internet and all of human knowledge is available at their fingertips on a whim. What can we do with machines that think? Dr. Ben Goetzel is an artificial intelligence researcher, CEO of Novamente, making AI software, CEO of Biomind, a company that uses artificial intelligence systems to analyse biological information, and CTO of longevity company Genesient. He spoke to me at the Singularity Summit Australia about his interest in using artificial intelligence on genetic networks to produce new medical knowledge and creating general artificial intelligences that think like humans. He also gave me his opinion on the technological singularity. As an artificial intelligence researcher, how did you get into biology? Well, I've had a long-standing interest in not being dead. My main interest in biology stemmed from my interest in life extension for myself, my loved ones, and uh, the rest of the human race. It seemed to me that artificial intelligence had a strong potential to help biology solve its hardest problems. And so I started working on that in around 2001. And as soon as I got into the field, I could see my intuition had had been right. And the biologists are generating massive amounts of data and basically had no idea what to do with it. And even textbook AI methods could be a big help. And our more advanced AI methods, verging on general intelligence, could be even more useful. What is it about the data that's being generated that plain old biologists are having trouble with and AI would make much easier to understand? Biology in the last decades has largely been driven by new measurement technologies such as microarrays and gene sequencers, and these are generating huge amounts of data much more data than biologists ever had to look at before. It's also much more complex data, giving information about biological networks involving 25,000 human genes, the proteins they code for, their behavior over various timescales. The human mind is not evolved to handle this type of data. We try to visualize it and analyze it statistically. But ultimately, we can do a lot better with the help of AI minds that are more customized to deal with this kind of problem. To that end, you've been building AIs that are looking at the problem of aging, working on the genomes of the Methuselah flies. That's right. In my work applying AI to bioinformatics, we've taken AI algorithms from a field called machine learning, which is part of AI, 
and we've customized those pretty heavily to make them work optimally on biology data. We've worked on a lot of different biology problems related to human aging. One of the more interesting things I'm doing now involves not humans but fruit flies. We're looking at flies evolved at the University of California, Irvine, and then sold to Genescent Corporation, which live four to five times as long as normal flies. They produce them by experimental evolution, by selective breeding over 30 years, which means even though the flies live a really long time, they don't know exactly why. But we've measured the genetic material of the flies using gene expression and SNP, single nucleotide polymorphism technology. We can then apply AI technology to this data to try to understand what's different about the genomes of the long-lived flies versus the ordinary flies. And this has given us an awful lot of insight. It's helped us understand a couple dozen key genes which differentiate the long-lived flies from the normal flies and which may constitute a sort of central network of longevity. Basically, the AIs are finding the patterns. Is that what you're saying? That's right. Artificial intelligence is serving a role of pattern recognition. And it still is a tool for human biologists rather than a replacement for them because we need to figure out what data to feed the AI in what way so that it can then recognize the patterns. And we then need to interpret the results of the AI and figure out what it means in a broader biomedical context. And the, f the fruit fly genes, the genome, is rather similar to the human genome, more than most people would think. Yeah, that's right. We have 25,000 genes or so. The fruit fly doesn't have that many, maybe around uh, 14,000, 15,000, as I recall. But there's a lot with human homologs, and when we analyze the data, we're looking specifically for fruit fly genes which have homologs in human beings. On the functional level, the things that make fruit flies get old and die are largely the same as the things that kill us humans. They get heart disease, they get neurodegenerative disease, they get immune disease. They don't die much of cancer, which is a significant difference, but... By and large, there's a lot to be learned about the main causes of, of human aging from looking at flies. We can then take what we discover in flies, see how much of it holds up in mice, then see how much of that holds up in human beings. So it's a somewhat long path. It's going to take a number of years to get from where we are now to having really powerful therapies to combat human aging. But it's a fairly clear path that we understand pretty well. And the first products come off the line is on the market? Genation is marketing a nutraceutical supplement called Stem Cell 100, which was discovered in part by our AI technology applied to the genomes of the Methuselah flies. It's a combination of three different herbs that act on genes that were identified by the AI as important for longevity. When you give stem cell 100 to middle-aged flies, it dramatically extends their lifespan. And when you give it to people, it improves their heart function and other biomarkers of longevity. 
But I think we can do a lot better than that, discovering a lot more nutraceutical and pharmaceutical combinations, and perhaps more interestingly, avenues for gene therapy and other more radical interventions to increase human life. It's not going to be one silver bullet, one immortality pill. I think it's going to be a host of different therapies, which all together will let you live longer and longer. Then, of course, the longer you live, the more time you have for others to develop better and better life extension therapies to keep you living even longer. And finally, can you tell me something about your ideas about artificial general intelligence and the singularity? I tend to agree with my friend Ray Kurzweil that something like a singularity is likely to occur during this century. He's fairly confident to pinpoint the date at around 2045. I would tend to draw the confidence intervals a little wider. I could see it happening as soon as 2020, 2025, maybe as late as 2070 or 2100. In a grand historical sense, it doesn't really matter. We're looking at the most amazing event in the history of humanity, whereby humanity gives rise to new kinds of minds, new kinds of matter, new kinds of being, going way beyond anything we humans can understand. A lot of different technologies are going to be contributing to bringing the singularity about, but the one that's going to be at the center is AI, or specifically what I call AGI, or Artificial General Intelligence, AI programs that can think about a broad variety of things come up with new ideas and domains that their creators hadn't even thought of. I've been working on AGI for over 20 years. I've got a great team of collaborators, and I feel like we have a design for an AGI system that with significantly more work, maybe 5 to 15 more years of work, can yield a system as smart as human beings and keep going on from there. But I'm not the only one. There's an increasing community of researchers working on AGI. We have AGI conferences each year. The last one was two weeks ago on Google's campus in Mountain View, California. So if I don't manage to get there, there's a lot of other smart guys working on it. Someone's going to. We're going to have machines smarter than us before too long, and probably most of you will be able to talk to them. Ben Goetzel, thank you very much. Thank you. Machines That Think and The Man Who Makes Them. That was Dr. Ben Goetzel at the Singularity Summit Australia. He has a blog at www.goertzal.org. And you can find out more about the Singularity Summit Australia at www.singinst.org.au. Of course, the Methuselah flies an interesting experiment and show a little bit how the way that the singularity works or at least the way technological acceleration works because the Methuselah flies experiment started 30 years ago 30 years ago there were not very good computers there was no genetic sequencing there was no artificial intelligence there was no internet over 30 years of doing the experiment and it takes 30 years to do the experiment right you can't speed that up if you're going to do that sort of selective breeding in flies, you need 30 years. So 30 years later, we have genetic sequencing that's actually now cheap. Like only five years ago, it was super expensive and now it's cheap. We have really fast computers that are way beyond what they would have imagined 
30 years ago. And we have pretty advanced artificial intelligence that actually lets computers figure things out that humans can't. So all of these things have come together to allow a new type of pharmacology where instead of just trying experimentally what drugs work and what compounds work, we'll actually know exactly why they work and thus be able to design things that don't have side effects, for example, because we'll know why they work and why they have side effects and just exactly cause the effects we want. So all these things are technology coming together at exactly the right moment to enable something new. And this is what's happening all over the world right now with all the different technologies that people are, are developing at all the new sciences. And of course, everybody's got access to almost everything. So in the terms of information, and so people can build on each other's work. So things might go quite fast, which is probably why Ben's got such a optimistic view instead of uh, Ray Kurzweil, who thinks we'll have to wait to 2045 before we can live as long as we want to live. Julianne, do you have an interest in not dying? Oh, well, not dying very soon, for sure. I think we all have an interest in that. We want to live as... Well, most of us will want to live for as long as possible. You know, quality of life as well, considered. I thought it was interesting that Dr. Goetzel had so quite bold predictions for when we'd reached that point of singularity. Speaking about knowledge available at the fingertips, I heard there was a guy who lost his finger and actually had a USB stick put in his finger. Sort of prosthetic. Okay. Slight diversion. Well, that that's a little bit like the guy who lost an eye in a mm. car accident and has had it replaced with a wireless camera. Slightly creepy. You never Except know when he's recording. You never know at all. And, of course, we've all got these recorders in our pockets now anyway. We have video, we have audio. And, of course, the other thing that Dr. Goetzel was talking about is the longevity factor. The fact is humans now have a life expectancy double what it was 100 years ago when people were dying at around 40 that was wealthy, technologically well-off people were dying at age 40. So there's no reason to expect that that's going to stop any time soon. If we're just going to live longer and longer and healthier and healthier and stay younger for longer, that could change society on its own, With even if we don't have increases in human intelligence or all sorts of machine intelligences making formally impossible things possible. Well, you can expect to see the retirement age being pushed back for sure. Exactly. And what about inheritance? I mean, inheritance is a way of having death built into the system. Mm. And if it's no longer guaranteed, then maybe you actually have to build a good system instead of just waiting for someone to die who's not suitable. So if I'm understanding this correctly, are they implying that you basically cheat death or is it just really, really delaying it? Well... The technological singularity is the point where almost anything you can think of that's physically possible will become possible to do because the technological ad advancement is that fast. So it's becoming that fast. One of the things you want to do is live a long time in a young, healthy body. Then that is physically possible, right? There's nothing physically stopping that. It's just a matter of getting the right technology. And if that's all it is, then if this point actually happens, then of course you can do it. Then, of course, if it's possible to have self-aware machines, then it should be possible to copy all of what makes you you in your brain, right down to however low a level that has to be, into perhaps an artificial brain 
Now, it might not be a computer. It might be an artificial brain that works a bit more like our brains do. But in principle, there's no physical impossibility to that. Because if biology can do it, if several hundred million years of evolution can do it, then engineers could eventually learn how to do it. And if we're learning how to do things with superintelligent machines, maybe it's going to become very easy. You could back yourself up. But is the backup really you? It's a reasonably good copy. Yes. Hmm. I think since I'm not a supercomputer, I'm going to have to take some more time to uh, process that information. Well, a question for you to think about while you process the information is that if the copy of you that's made in the backup and then restored to a new body is a better copy, a closer copy, than the difference between the you who wakes up in the morning and the you who went to sleep the night before, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick, everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. And tell us your thoughts, stories and reactions. If you'd like to be on radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Dr Julianne Popple and Victoria Bond. I produced Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR Sydney with technical support from Therese Chen. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.